0: Friend, thank you so much for joining me on this beautiful Friday morning. My name is Pastor Gerald and you are listening to Grace Waves, brought to you by Greater Grace Church, South Africa. Our friend, today we are going to be listening to the second part of the message that we started yesterday. And this is a message we shared from Ravi Zacharias and it is called Invested Dignity, Reflective Glory. That which God has invested in us, which is our identity. And it is that identity that gives us the ability to reflect God's glory. It is that which God has put in that we are able to put out. So friend, please listen carefully to the last part of this message. It's really a beautiful message. And I believe that there is a lot of meaning and purpose that you can find within this message. So please enjoy it. And as always, friend, may you have a wonderful day and an awesome weekend. And may God bless you.
1: Now, if that is understood, let us take a look at that face for a fleeting moment in one of the grandest of all prayers. I'll just highlight the idea for you. You don't even need to turn to it. As he punctuates that prayer and says, I fulfilled the purpose for which you sent me, here is the clue to me that has helped me understand my purpose. In the middle of that prayer, I can just about hear it. In a heart-rending cry, he cries out, Holy Father. Holy Father. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not orphans in this world. We are not the random product of time plus matter plus chance. We are fashioned by God. He is our Holy Father, and I come to Him the same way. Do you know what that means? There's a fearful symmetry to that description. Holy, that keeps Him so distant and different, and yet Father, that brings Him so near and dear. I was preaching in a church in Lookout Mountain, Tennessee, staying in a lovely home, magnificent home. And the couple there, it was very evident, soon began to talk about the heaviness that was evident on their faces. And I shared this story with you, having got their permission for it. My teammates and I hadn't been there even a few minutes when we realized in the splendor of that home there was a loneliness and there was a sadness until they told us That two years ago, something very tragic happened in the life of their son. In an accident that took place in the life of Greg Simmons. Greg Simmons was a highly successful businessman. He was a godly man. He was making it big. He told his dad he was going to retire shortly because his contracts were pouring forth such gain. He wanted to give more time to serve his Lord. He was a picture of success in every sense of the term, in every good sense of the term. He bought himself a farm in Highlands, North Carolina, a father of uh, five children, the youngest a babe in arms. And one day he took four of his children, the oldest was 12, the youngest was three. And they went up into a rather rugged area on their property, a rather hilly area, to look at a waterfall that his boy had wanted to see for some time, had been asking his dad to take him. So he took four of his children, took a friend of his who also brought a son. So there were seven of them going, and then in one unfortunate, fatal step, Greg Simmons took a step forward, put it down on some faulty terrain, and came hurtling down a quarter of a mile to a rather tragic and violent death. I want to read for you the letter his twelve-year-old son wrote that was given to me by his grandparents, and the little boy wrote it to some friends of theirs, the Whelans in Atlanta and listen to the depth of what he says Dear Miss Whelan You don't know how much your family helped produce my father He admired your husband and you a lot He would talk about how good your faith was with God He tried to be as generous as you all have been to the church and to many other things Since his death the true friends were revealed Your family was at the top of our list You are a great source of energy for my mother and I My father loved you very much and was always trying to be like you. My father was like the three men in the Bible who were given the talents by Jesus. One went out and invested them and multiplied them. One took some stock that failed and came out with nothing. The last one buried them and did nothing with them. All three returned in a few days later and the Lord was pleased with the two who had tried to multiply them. But even though one man had come back with the same amount, the Lord was disappointed because he didn't try. My father multiplied and lost many things, but he always was pleasing the Lord. He got a lot of that from your family. My dad was a risk taker, and that's just the way he was. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning is God, and that's what really mattered to my father. In the beginning of my dad's life, he was something special and a risk taker. That's why he was so brilliant and successful. No one will understand how or why my dad fell into the waterfall. Do yourself a favor and don't try to figure it out. My dad died for his children. He was making sure it was safe for us to come up. You may hear different things, but only six people saw it, and only three understand or understood what really happened. I am one of those. My mom lost her treasure chest, her husband. Most of the others lost Greg. You lost a best friend. My grandparents lost their son. Forrest, John, and Barbara lost their brother. But you know, it's different for me. Totally different for me. He was my best friend and my idol. And when I got my last glimpse of him falling down the falls, I lost my most prized man on earth. He was my father. He was my one and only dad. I had a dream three nights ago, but it wasn't a dream. My father is all right. He told me himself, thank you for being a true friend. I love you a lot. William Blake said, Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye has framed your fearful symmetry? What immortal hand or eye has framed your fearful symmetry? The majesty of a tiger and yet its terror. The splendor of the world that God has created and yet the darkness that now ensues And this little 12-year-old boy in the darkest night of his soul saw the brightest light shining because even though he was orphaned in the earthly sense of the term, he understood that his heavenly father was still completely in control. Ladies and gentlemen, the first great truth of creation is that God has created us for sonship, if you'll allow me to use that term in the generic sense. For sonship. God wanted to tell us who he was. And he sent us a son. Why? So that we could know how to relate to him. And in the face of Christ. We see that cry out. My father. Righteous father. Holy father. I have done everything for which you have set me here. And I have displayed your glory to your people. How in that moment of anguish. The reflective glory was there, but let us not miss the invested dignity. He was the son. Let me turn this on its axis completely. I have a boy called Nathan, 10 years old. He asked me if I would go and watch him play t-ball. Now, I was raised in India with cricket. I didn't know what t-ball was. I thought t-ball was where you played ball and they served you tea. And that was good cricket, so I decided to go. I'll never forget these tiny little boys in their outfits that were two sizes too large and helmets that were pitiful because they had to hold their neck up at an angle which made horizontal vision impossible. (laughs) But they were so impressed with themselves carrying their picnic baskets with them after this grueling game in which they were only allowed to score five runs an inning because otherwise we'd be there till eternity nobody ever gets out and I'll never forget that first moment my little boy got up to bat and I had a little book tucked under my arm while the rest of the game went on because I knew nothing different would take place somebody would be hit and nobody would get the ball back in time but yet they love to slide as if they just made it by a coat of paint do you know what he did every time, never missed a step every time As soon as he'd whack that ball, which in about five or six attempts, every one of them did, because it was put on a tee. And as they swatted that thing, he would take off as fast as he could, just get to the spot where he needed to get, and the coach would tell him to stop. He'd come into the position the coach told him to, and the first thing he did, look in my direction and go this way, as if to say, did you see me, Dad? His sonship and thrill came from bringing pleasure to his father and somewhere from when that pleasure is innocent to a point that gets bribed, there's a hiatus there but in the beginning it's pure unadulterated pleasure in bringing glory to his father and I say to you on this anchor hinges two simple little thoughts with which I want to tie it together purpose number one sonship, purpose number two very quickly is worship for which we were created. Worship. As we look at the difference between the secular world and the Christian world, here's what I concluded one day. In the secular world, they give you tiny little meanings with no ultimate meaning. They give you tiny little purposes with no ultimate purpose. And so they have no skin for life. They just have this fragmentary way of going about it, finding momentary meaning and momentary purposes with no ultimate meaning and no ultimate purpose. But this is so drastically different to what the Christian message is all about. A contemporary writer has said this, Without worship we shrink, and that is the brutal truth. Without worship we shrink, and that is the brutal truth. I want you to hear this now. The New Age movement is little more than the valiant attempt of secularism to mitigate its bankruptcy with the spurious glitter of Eastern mysticism. There is no ground for renewal in secularism. There is no ground for renewal. And the New Age movement is a valiant attempt to mitigate the bankruptcy of secularism with the spurious glitter of Eastern mysticism because without worship we shrink and that is the brutal truth. Worship is co-extensive with life. The culmination of it that you bring on the Lord's Day in corporate worship is, after all, not 400 non-worshippers coming so they can worship. You really don't come to the sanctuary, you bring the sanctuary with you. Worship is co-extensive with life. Archbishop William Temple put it all together magnificently in this way. He says, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by His holiness, nourishment of mind by His truth, purifying of imagination by His beauty, opening of the heart to His love and submission of will to His purpose. All this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we are capable. Quickening of conscience by His holiness, nourishment of mind by His truth, purifying of imagination by His beauty, opening of the heart to His love and submission of will to His purpose. All of this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we are capable. You see the skin. Not only in church, but also on the track and field. Not only in conscience, but also heart imagination. The cohesiveness and the coalescing of life. Now, here's the winner of the illustration. You'll enjoy this. Have you ever paused and thought for a moment what the existentialist lives for? He lives for the moment, for the now, with a passion. Have you ever wondered what the utopianist lives for? Pie in the sky, by and by when I die futurist. Have you ever wondered what the Hebrew lived for? It was always the past. Ever seen Fiddler on the Roof? You want to know what keeps us together? Tradition, tradition, tradition. God harness this. I am the Lord God that brought you out of the land of Egypt in the past. Therefore you shall have no other gods before me. The Hebrew for the past, existentialist for the present, utopianist for the future. Jesus Christ took bread and when he had broken it, he said this, as oft as you do this, now you do proclaim the Lord's death in the past until he come future. He fused every meaning of history with significance and meaning. Every moment of history. Not just the present, not just the past, not just the future. As oft as you do this, now. You proclaim the Lord's death, past, until he come future. So the components of our lives are brought together. Our activities are brought together. Time is transcended as it were. And all of it comes together in a beautiful coextensiveness of life itself. And without worship, we shrink. That's the brutal truth. God has made us for a purpose. We see it in our sonship as we see it in the relationship Christ had. We see it in the worship as he taught the woman at the well. They that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. The Father seeketh such to worship him. And lastly, in stewardship. If you notice in the book of Genesis when God creates, it goes this way. And God did this. And God did this. And God did this. And God did this. Then... He said, let us make man. Then, when? When the world was fashioned for man. It's an anthropocentrism. Man is the center. Kind of a reversal of the Copernican theory, as it were, that the earth is indeed the center of God's attention. May not be the center of the planetary orbits, as it were, but it is the center of God's attention. After God created man and set him in the garden there, with all of this to take care of, principle I gain is that success in life comes about in mastering two arts, the art of acquiring and the art of administering." Ah, you gain and then you administer, and man is the chief operating officer, for God says to him, be fruitful and multiply, subdue and rule. Let me just take one simple illustration and make an application here. In our world today, Something staggering is happening. It didn't hit me until one day when I was running around the Cambridge campus there, I looked at many of the windows outside, and they all had posters. And they were all for animal rights, or this, or environment. Stop killing the whale, stop doing this to the owl, or this or that, whatever. And I'm not against that. That's not the point of what I'm making here. But it suddenly dawned on me as I ran past those homes that chances are, if an issue of abortion came up, very few voices from those same homes, judging by the other stuff on their windows, would ever come to the defense of an unborn child. And what hit me was this. We have gone back to Romans 1. We are worshiping the creature more than we are the Creator. See how the eradication has taken place? There are movements of that tell us there is no difference between man and woman. And there are subtle movements of that tell us there is no difference between the animal world and the human world. Bacon called it man's conquest of nature. And C.S. Lewis said if you understand it in the Baconian sense, it will lead to the abolition of man. Here's the quote that Peter Kreef, professor of Boston College says about man's conquest of nature here. The term man in the phrase man's conquest of nature is a sexually chauvinistic term. Not because all use of the traditional generic man is, but because we have a civilization that is in the midst of what Carl Stern called the flight from woman. We extol action over contemplation, doing over being, analysis over intuition, Problems over mysteries, success over contentment, conquering over nurturing, the quick fix over lifelong commitment, the prostitute over the mother. Somewhere we've eradicated the differences, while God in his splendor gave that distinctive strength to a man, and gave that distinctive charm to a woman. And in that complementariness at least reminding us we couldn't do it alone gave us distinctive splendors, distinctive abilities, and then together, as part of this world that he had created, we were to rule and be stewards of the rest of the world that he had created. Finding our sonship in him, finding our worship in him, and then finding that stewardship so that we would be responsible administrators of what had given to us. Please remember now, Sonship is undergirded by love, worship is undergirded by reverence, and stewardship is undergirded by accountability. And if you take love, reverence, and accountability, you can see why Augustine says, You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And may I just add, in every other system of the world, life precedes love. In Christianity alone, love precedes life. God in his love has created us. And now there remains only one thing. When we get there, the greatest accolade of all, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And like my little boy, we can look up and say, how do you like that, my father? It's for your glory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in Fearful Symmetry. Bonhoeffer in prison, captured by the Nazis, struggling with the essence of his own life, wrote this powerful poem from a Berlin prison cell. Who am I? They often tell me. I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me. I would talk to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me. I would bear the days of misfortune, equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other people tell me I am? Or am I only what I know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, trembling with anger at despotisms and petty humiliation, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making faint and ready to say farewell to it all, who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Sonship, worship, stewardship, love, reverence, and accountability. And in that administration, we find our Holy Father giving us the purpose and meaning for which he made us.